Hey, welcome to another episode of the Stop to Think podcast. Today, I thought that we would talk about something that's not going to seem interesting at the very first mention of it, but that if you actually kind of get into it, turns out to be incredibly interesting. The topic of choice, which I think we're going to turn into a bit of a series, is incentive structures. So, this will be episode one of our incentive structure theory series. We're not going to stick with that name, but basically, when I say incentive structure, what I mean is the reward system that is set up by either circumstances or deliberate effort of some party to motivate another party to behave or act in a certain way. So broadly speaking, I think there are about three different kind of categories we can break this into easily. The first category is incentive structures in your personal life and your personal relationships. The uh, second category is monetary incentive structures that are kind of set up in like the workforce and in your career. And the third category, broadly speaking, is what I'd probably call the incentive structure set up by society as a whole. So for this first episode, we are going to focus on incentive structures and your personal relationships. So brace yourself because with all of our previous episodes in this one, same as them, I'm basically talking on the fly and what's coming out of my mouth may or may not be smart. Matter of fact, most of the stuff that comes out of my mouth probably would not be considered smart, but that's not an issue we're going to worry about. So, incentive structures in your personal relationships. What does that even mean? Like, how does that even apply to anything at all? Well, I think before we can get to that, we kind of have to talk about how incentives kind of work in the first place. The idea is generally... that people are motivated by their own self-interests. And for the most part, that does seem to be the case that squares with reality because motivation for people, I think could actually be argued. I think it could, I think I could, I think I could successfully debate and argue with someone to prove that um, everyone is always acting in their own best self-interest and now your first uh, pushback against that might be well like what about charity and my response to that is what about it have you ever stopped to think about how charity kind of works and people's reasons for giving to charity some people might give to charity out of just like sheer religious obligation 
is probably the word for it. So like in uh, Christianity and Judaism, for an example, like you're supposed to tithe, to give a tenth of your income to God or the church or some such thing that he would approve of. So in a sense, you're giving that away, which isn't necessarily to your own financial benefit, giving away 10% of your income. But at the same time, in that case, you believe you're doing it to please God and, you know, basically your incentive is kind of like your self-interest again. If you, if, if a person thought that they could not listen to that mandate while subscribing to those religions and carry on without any lasting cons- consequences to their own personal interest, then they probably wouldn't tie. Then you kind of see a lot of people probably don't. Another example is like you see these ultra rich companies and then people also giving to charity and it seems great and fantastic and everything but you got to remember that in exchange for that they're also receiving stuff in return so like in the case of companies that are generous and give to charity like companies that are active in their local communities that higher local community activity can tie to better chances of success when it comes to like employment and hiring people and being well received and customers and sales and all that stuff. And when it comes to like individuals, like, you know, the big rich ones like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or any of those guys giving to charity, they too benefit to a certain extent from basically publicity because there kind of comes a point with money where like i think it's kind of dependent on where you live exactly but depending on your exact location there comes there's an amount of money that is so great that you cannot rationally spend it now of course anyone can always irrationally blow any amount of money like a person could buy like a solid gold garage or something insanely just silly like that, that would cost an incredibly large amount of money, but it wouldn't really be a rational purpose because a a golden garage would basically be like a flex. And it would also most likely get robbed if we're being honest here, but getting back out of the weeds a little bit, A person might potentially be able to give away money or do some act of kindness without seeking a benefit. But at the end of the day, every action has has a consequence to it. And the consequences of being generous and giving to people are usually you feel a bit better about yourself because it's better to give than receive. And you also have like, um, 
the social perception that comes along with it. So what's motivating these people to give their money away? Kindness, compassion, all that stuff. But at the same time, they're also kind of compensated it, compensated for their generosity in other ways too, like on tax forms, for example, like either if, if you're, if you're in absurdly wealthy, your options are you can either basically give your taxable money to Uncle Sam and let him squander it as he, see, as he sees fit, or you can personally direct your money to various charities, to tax deductible charities, and basically decrease your tax burden. With the advantage here being that instead of having Uncle Sam take your money and go and spend it on like, um, I don't know, a road in rural Utah or something like that, you can choose to have your money spent on like uh, environmental activism or helping children learn how to read it stuff that stuff that's higher impact and more closely aligned with your personal preferences as opposed to like infrastructure projects and stuff like that. So point here being that in almost all cases, although it technically might be possible to basically do something that goes either neutral or against your own self-interest for the benefit of someone else. Typically, when we watch human interactions, what we see is people acting in their in their own self-interest. And like another example of people acting against their self-interest might be having children and raising children and sacrificing for your children and all that stuff. But in that case, it's once again depends on where you draw the lines. If you're willing to draw the lines at a superficially high level, well, then you can actually make the argument that people do act out of just sheer generosity and kindness without any expectation of any return from their actions. But if you get nuanced with it and start digging into the details, like even with kids, why, why does a person have a child? Well, in our case, a lot of times accidentally in our modern society, but in at least some cases because a child's wanted. And what does having a child usually bring for you? Well, a lot of stress to be sure, but also joy in life and like basically another person who is somewhat obligated to love you unless you screw it up. Because I think it's safe to say that most children, if they grow up with their parents being like decent people, they'll just naturally have a bond with them that can bring a person, a parent, major satisfaction and happiness in life. To have someone who cares for you unconditionally, kind of like a child usually does for their parent. Of course, that can all go astray because, you know, we live in a fallen, flawed world and people mess stuff up all the time. But that is very much a topic for another episode. Cutting to the chase here. So for the purposes of our talk, we're going to assume that people are always acting for their own benefit. So 
we don't necessarily mean their benefit in terms of like monetary benefits because it's possible for people to act in ways that benefit them but also cost them money so like for an example you know if you need a surgery to like repair a femur fracture that healed wrong years ago that's causing you to walk completely goofy that surgery might not be a necessity necessarily because you might be able to function in life with your messed up femur just fine but it will improve the quality of your life so basically paying for the cost of the surgery is going to hurt you financially but benefit you in a broader sense by increasing your overall quality of life so anyway getting back to the chase that's kind of what I mean by when I say incentives is that we're assuming that people by and large act for their own self-interest and that in your personal relationships, if you recognize this, a lot of interesting insights kind of make yourself opaque, I think, or visible. And you begin to see some very interesting behavior patterns that otherwise, if you're not thinking about the incentive structure, kind of appear obscured. So what is, yeah, sorry for the dead air here, dead air here. This is literally what happens when you're running this on the fly trying to decide which way I want to take this. So I think what we're going to do is go from the friendship perspective first. So not all incentives need necessarily be monetary. That's something that's important to get across although it works pretty well for incentives to be monetary, but like incentives can be anything really. Basically all that an incentive needs to be to qualify as an incentive is it needs to be something that a person wants and ta-da, you have an incentive. Or I take that back a little bit. Something that someone wants that can be gotten through certain actions. So a great example of incentives in your personal relationships are like friendships. So like what's the incentive structure of a friendship? Well, that's a good question. Of course. Why do people have friends? That's also a good question. And there's many, many, many different answers to that question but most of them tie back to the incentive structure thing. Some people have friends simply so they're not alone. So in that case, the incentive to have a friend, the driving force pushing you to want friendship to seek out friends is an aversion to loneliness. You don't want to spend time by yourself and you want other people in your life. So you're incentivized to try and fix your loneliness problem by finding a friend. 
other people are much more maniacal. And I recently got the opportunity to deal with one of these such people just this last week, the kind of person who basically uses people for their own gain and then kind of discards them whenever there's no longer an advantage to be gained by having said people around. So these kind of people, their incentive is basically they need something that someone else can provide in their life. And so they're motivated by their self-interest, whatever that may be. And they kind of use their relationships and the relationships with other people as like disposable means of accomplishing their own self-fulfillment. So in the case of this particular person, I've kind of watched said individual go through life kind of pruning relationships to basically fit exactly what said person needed at the time, regardless of the consequences that said person's action would have on the people who she was basically taking advantage of is probably the best way to put it. So classical example of the kind of person you only hear from when they want something pretty much the kind of person who only goes out of their way to help people when it's perceived to have some sort of benefit down the road, the kind of person who maintains relationships so that they have options should they need to exercise them. The kind of person who wants to avoid burning bridges in case they have to use them at some point. Now, is there inherently anything wrong with being that way? Probably not. But at the same time, if you're going to get into the deeper aspect of it, there probably is because... depending on how you treat people, it can basically affect other areas of your life. So like the best example I can think of is say you're a discarder. So you're the kind of person who has needs that need to be met. And so your incentive is to meet your needs and you come across people who are capable of providing for those needs, then you take advantage of those people to meet said needs. And then basically once the needs are met, you discard said person and then kind of move on doing your thing. The danger with doing this in life is that you never really know what's going to be around the next corner. You never really know um, how it's going to all play out. So it's entirely possible for you to be a discarder type person where, okay, your incentive is once again, you need something from somebody. And once you have that something and you don't need them anymore, you get rid of them. What seems to happen occasionally? And I have only seen this happen once in my 
personal life, but I've seen it happen quite a few times in literature and in stories from other people's lives. But what seems what seems to occasionally happen is um, you'll basically use someone in an exploitative manner and then kind of discard them. And then through unforeseen circumstances, you'll end up in a position later in life where you're suddenly dependent on someone you discarded for something. And usually it's at a point in your life where it's entirely inconvenient for you to need something from someone who you screwed over, basically. And then when that happens, you got to eat a lot of crow and you got to hope that the person you treated poorly decides to forgive you and take the high road as opposed to raking you across the coals for how you treated them in the past. Now, of course, some exploitative people never come across as reckoning, but others do and basically have a come to Jesus moment from it because they end up getting a taste of their own medicine. So, Your incentives for friendship can be a desire to cure loneliness uh, or your incentives for having relationships with people, not so much friendship, but I guess really all relationships have a component of friendship in them to a certain extent, but that's probably a definitional question more than anything. Um, When you're working with relationships, Your incentives can be to basically get rid of your own personal like loneliness. Your incentives can be to basically like gain something from the relationship. And then your incentive can also probably be pretty much endless. Like there, the incentives for relationships are so varied that there's no way we could ever cover them all. So like, let's let's look at marriage quick because that's there's a lot of interesting incentives that are built into that. So like, what would be an incentive for someone to get married? Why 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 do it? Considering what we know about divorce rates and all the suffering that marriage brings about for so many peoples in the world, what's, what is the motivating factor to make that worth the risk that's associated with it? Well, of course there's uh, access to unlimited booty calls to put it bluntly or theoretically access to unlimited booty calls. From what I understand, usually of course I'm not married, so I have no experience with any of this, but Usually, your bedroom adventures seem to improve initially after marriage and then taper off and decline, depending especially on the quality of your marriage and how things are going. But let us not be dissuaded by that. It is most definitely certain that the bedroom activities are undoubtedly a strong incentive for marriage. Another incentive would basically be like companionship, like almost guaranteed companionship. 
because the thought kind of is, is that if you're married to someone, that's a higher level of commitment than just a regular friendship. And hopefully that person will, you know, schedule their lives in such a manner to as so as to make themselves more available to you. So basically, if, if you're married, you, in theory, are always guaranteed to have like a dinner date and someone to watch movies with and someone to travel with and basically like a companion who is obligated to be a companion-ish as opposed to like regular friendship companions where your um, companionship is dependent on a very large number of factors. And I suppose it applies to marriage as well. But the idea generally with marriage is that by and large, through the power of commitment and signing government recognized papers and swearing your love in front of all your friends and family for the rest of your lives, all that fun stuff. The idea with all that is that that heightened level of commitment provides incentives and like a push basically to, um, you know, go over above and beyond your normal call of duty to basically make a relationship work with the person you're married to, as opposed to if you were just friends with this person. So yeah, another incentive to marriage is basically like the teamwork aspect of it like potentially having someone else who is also looking out for your best interests. The two heads are better than one. The whole entire um, two incomes potentially. Uh, it's pretty hard for a single person to buy a house in the current housing market. But with a married person, with a married couple, it's a lot more feasible because unless you're really having a high burn rate, if you're both like average, which means you're making like 50 to 60K, your household income, if you're married, is like 120K per year, roughly, like somewhere in that ballpark. It's pretty easy for a couple to live off of like $50,000, $60,000 a year, unless they're like, spending like complete and utter dotards or something like that or dodo birds or whatever assuming they're not spending like the end of the world is upon them it's basically pretty easy to live off of half your household income so long as you've made frugally wise decisions up to that point and you're not living under a crippling pile of debt and so basically two people can live off of one meeting income in the united states pretty easily which leaves a whole entire second median income that can just be saved. So it's kind of interesting, actually, when you think about it. It's like housing costs, living costs, amenities costs, all that stuff does not scale necessarily per person. So like for an example, A person really only needs one toaster. But at the same time, a married couple really only needs one toaster. 
and this goes upwards to like a family of maybe four or five, five people can easily share one toaster if they have a little bit of patience. Same goes for a car. A married couple who lives and works in the same area can easily potentially like this. It's depending on how close you live to where you work. It's pretty easy to live off of just having one car and then like a bike or some smaller form of transportation. So overall, these, um, the, uh, the, the cost, the cost of living and of existing is mathematically speaking, not a linear function, basically. So one person is not half as expensive as two people. It's probably closer to like one person cost, we'll say $50,000 to live a year. And another person on top of that could share a lot of that initial $50,000 of stuff. And then, um, you know, only need like an extra couple thousand dollars beyond that. Looks like we're running out of time in this segment. So I guess the series is going to be interesting. We're probably going to have to have multiple parts to each episode because I guess I can talk about this more than I thought. So we're going to cut this one off for now and we'll continue with the same topic in the next episode. So thank you for listening to this episode of Stop to Think. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, This was Chandler and have a great day.